1: Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of this series at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's talk is by Jim Urban, the well-known landscape architect from Annapolis, Maryland. He specializes in designing space for trees in the urban environment. He will be speaking on incorporating trees into urban rainwater management systems. This lecture was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009.
0: Peter McDonough was originally supposed to be co-presenting with me today and was unable to make it, but he and I worked on the presentation together. Um, My area of expertise is trees and and soils, and Peter's is is stormwater. And we've uh, come together um, over the last four or five years to talk about and and muse about and and try to create um, some alternative ways of looking at stormwater. Um, and the title of the talk is actually Trees and Rainwater Management. Uh, and I like really to think about, while, while the manuals all say stormwater, um, I like to think about it as rainwater because rainwater is, a, is an asset. Stormwater is a liability. Uh, and the, 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 the way the manuals typically work, um, you really are dealing with the first inch and a quarter, inch and a half, depends on where you are in the country, um, what your regulations are, but that's the rainwater portion. Those aren't storms. Those are rain events. And the storm, which is the one the engineer uh, works on, is when we start getting up to two and three inches in a day. Those are real storms, and, and they, they can do a lot of damage. Um, and most of that water, even under the regulations, runs off the site. Um, and it's very difficult to deal with on the site, although it probably could be. Um, But the regulations really only talk about the rain portion. Um, So my philosophy has been let the designers of trees and soils and landscapes, the landscape architects, work with the rain portion and give the storm portion to the engineer. Um, And when you think about that philosophy, you can begin now to incorporate rainwater ideas into the design of cities and landscapes, in a non-engineered way, in a a way that's much softer and and much uh, uh, more viable and sustainable, and then let the engineers uh, take the rest of it into their pipes um, and and put it off to the ocean. And um, it's this basic diagram where, uh, when we start out with a natural system, we have about 50% um, infiltration, that's water going into the ground, and only about 10% runoff. Uh, That's what things look like in 1492. And in a a normal city, we now have approximately 55% runoff and only 15% infiltration. And what we're trying to do, essentially, is to try and bring this diagram back as close as we can to a natural system. Uh, Bonnie began uh, to um, talk about what the the, the standards are in her lecture. The current standards that we're working under are this uh, uh, NPDES system, which is a law that came into effect in 2003. Um, And what that did was moved us, she talked about the point uh, sources, moved us to non-point sources, and dramatically decreased the size system that needed to be incorporated under the law. So now the new law from 2003 is looking at towns of 10,000 people, which is a pretty small um, uh, area, um, or an urbanized area of 50,000 people in the whole metropolitan area. So um, most of the places where you're working are now covered by this national law. um, And we think that you can use this law to your advantage to sell concepts for better trees. Now, the design goals uh, for this this system is both quantity and quality. Uh, The filter system uh, that Bonnie was talking about is a quality device, but it doesn't uh, work very well for quantity, meaning taking the water, trying to hold it on the site, infiltrating some of it, um, and and holding it as long as you can, um, and then discharging it very slowly, so that quantity uh, device requires uh, very large structures of some kind. We can do filtering in a small space, but the quantity um, requires a, l- a lot more uh, room. So we're looking for volume um, and the time that that water is held at the site. Uh, we are increasing the, We want to increase uh, the infiltration into the soil, if that's possible, and, and in a lot of places that doesn't, isn't possible. But if we can increase the evapotranspiration uh, of water out of where we're holding it, uh, that counts also. We want to reduce the pollutant load in some way, and we also need to reduce the water temperature um, as part of the water quality. Um, Also, all of those things are are critical to uh, meeting the the current set of regulations. Bonnie Bonnie did a very good job of, of showing you the 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 options, and so I'm going to breeze through these pretty quickly. Uh, Basically, we have ponds and cisterns. Uh, Those are just quantity uh, devices. They hold water. Uh, They don't do much for filtering or settling water um, unless we're able to hold that water and then reapply it to the site through recycled irrigation. Um, And then just simple surface infiltration, pervious pavers, green roofs, that whole a matter of things where we're taking water and putting it directly into some kind of soil medium um, and either infiltrating it into the soil or holding it just for a short uh, period of time. The problem with these systems is they require an awful lot of space uh, to, to make them work. Then there's the rain garden and uh, biofiltration. Um, this seems, these seem to be the most effective options um, to get them large enough to handle quality or quantity uh, still requires a fairly large amount of space. Um, approximately 15 percent of the 15 to 20 percent of the total paved area, including the roof uh, of the building, has to be in rain gardens in order to meet the regulations. So that's a that's a very large area. In if you are in an urban in an urban site. We also find generally that trees are not often incorporated into these biofiltration uh, and rain garden systems. Um, And I'm not sure if that's just simply an aesthetic bias um, or some technical bias. So I'm gonna focus in on these uh, low-tech, what I'll call low-tech rainwater management systems, basically the the idea of the rain garden. Um, And there are some misconceptions. And the first is that they seem to be only felt that, that they're applicable in suburban areas uh, where we have enough space to make uh, it happen um, and that the, when you put them into more urbanized areas they, that they're taking up space that's very expensive. Uh, so it, it, even though the system itself is relatively cheap, the, the actual land that they take up is quite expensive um, and so that, that, and that land is needed for other use. Um, the... Uh, there's this idea that these uh, rain gardens require some kind of free-draining sub-base soil, uh, which doesn't exist in urban areas, uh, so therefore, therefore they're not applicable. And finally, as I said, large trees are often excluded uh, from these kinds of systems, um, and, and I'm, I'm not sure why. I haven't found a good, good answer for that. But we do find that low-tech solutions are being incorporated into urban urban areas. I'm going to show you a lot of examples from the city of Portland. Um, And they can be actually quite small, um, uh, depending on what what volume that you need. Um, These low-tech solutions can allow multiple uses. You can pave over the top of them. Um, And so they they can be hidden in the landscape or incorporated into the landscape. Um, This idea of trees, if you go into the literature on on natural wetlands, you'll find that forested wetlands are the most efficient wetlands for evapotranspiration, filtering, uh, cleaning water. These are our best wetlands, our forested wetlands, and the trees grow just fine in them. So uh, it seems that trees could be a part of our our filtering uh, system. There's also an idea that the, the filtering medium in these systems has to be a very high flow rate sand. Um, but yet most, when we look at natural forested wetlands, they're usually in fine grain, silty, or clay soil um, environments. Um, which uh, you know, So how does, how does that jibe with the, the engineering science uh, that we're finding? So we would like to essentially think about trees as a stormwater utility. And I think that the important word here is utility. The, in the past, we have sold trees because they're good. They're beautiful. Um, they make pleasant places for people to, to live in. Uh, but when we got to the root system of the tree, we had to fight with all the other, other utilities uh, that we were working with, and we were trying to cram this very, very large root system into a tiny little space because that's all the space we could get for beauty, for nice places for people to live. If we can elevate the tree to a functional level to, a, to have a value that the engineer can understand, that the engineer can see, I can reduce my cost. Um, I can incorporate it into, and the root system of the tree suddenly becomes part of the utility. This changes the whole equation. And in fact, now in the city of Toronto, where we've been doing a lot of this work, they actually require the the rooting systems of the tree, the soil systems we're providing, are actually now beginning to be required to show on the city utility maps. So that the other utilities have to work around them, or they have their dedicated space, because... They are now understanding how important the root system of, of the tree is. We also know that in o- that to get the benefits that we we all think about uh, trees and the work of Kathleen Wolf, the work of Greg McPherson, um, and a lot of other pe- good work I mean, people whose names you're all familiar with, we have to be talking about large trees. Um, and uh, I, the Forest Services uh, came out with this idea that a 30 inch diameter tree, that's a big tree, produces 70 times the benefits of a three inch caliper tree. So look what happens to that tree over time um, as it, as it uh, begins to grow. And most of the benefits, when you start adding them up in terms of dollars, most of the benefits in this blue bar is actually storm water. That's the biggest benefit that a, that a tree provides in terms of dollars in return to the city as a utility. And, and, and most of those dollars are in the large deciduous trees uh, that we currently use as street trees um, to cool the, the city to do all the things that we want to do. And these small deciduous trees, crepe myrtles, and those kinds of things are, are not providing very many benefits. So we've really got to get into this large deciduous tree category. So what is it about these large deciduous trees? Uh, that? What is the system that we're trying to replicate? And most critically is this large canopy, where, where the canopy itself is absorbing the first tenth of an inch of, of the rain. Well, if you only have to absorb an, an inch to meet the regulations, you've got 10% free in the canopy. So that, that's, an, and then we can evaporate back out a large amount of that water right after the rain and we can also then evapotranspirate more water out of the ground out of that canopy. We know we have to have a very large horizontal root system. We've got water has to go down, water has to come up. We have to get air in and out of, of the, the soil. We're trying for very limited um, uh, runoff and we have to have good porosity and pore space um, in the soil to make all this work. When we have a a typical urban tree, we don't get those benefits. We end up with small canopies, uh, very limited uh, transpiration, very little water caught. Um, We have poorly draining soils, limited groundwater, limited surface absorption. So it's no wonder the engineer will look at you as if you've stepped off uh, the wrong side of the planet here when you tell them that this tree is going to become a stormwater utility. Now, in order to really understand how these things work, you've got to go back um, to a little bit of soils, and I, I should say that I'm not expecting that you, you as, as arborists are going to c- be able to come out of this meeting being able to design these systems. They're very uh, intricate and there's a lot of politics and uh, engineering behind it, but you need to understand the terminology because, frankly, a lot of these engineers and landscape architects don't know how to design these systems either. Um, and somewhere I saw a report that 80% of rain gardens failed uh, for various reasons. So so the design work has still got a long way to go to catch up. But you, if you understand the terminology, you can walk into a meeting if you're, pro- if you're being a proponent for these systems um, and begin to have to level the playing field simply because you understand the language. So the first thing you need to understand is how does water move into and out of the soil and we know that in a sandy soil uh, water moves through very very rapidly but in a loam soil water moves through almost as rapidly. There's some big advantages to loam soil and I'm going to be making a case to move from here over further down the road into the loam side of the equation, trying to move away from the sandy side. And the clay soils you know, move water in very, very slowly. But this clay soil that's here is ground up clay. So it's very fine clay. But soil in the natural environment doesn't look like this. It's got structure and natural pore space and things that are happening. And clay soils can be very rapid draining. I've seen clay soils drain at five to inches an hour, which is plenty of uh, uh, infiltration rate for most of these systems, um, if, it hasn't, if it hasn't been destroyed by humans. We really uh, reduce the soil by, by how we manipulate it. We need to understand the three states of soil so that we start out with the soil completely filled with water and it's saturated And if we turn the water off, the water drains down, and all of the macro pores in the soil empty out, and there's still lots of water held in the the micro pores in the soil. The water between field capacity and saturation point is the the amount you're allowed to uh, include in your water quantity calculation because it goes into the soil very rapidly, and it drains out very slowly, so it begins to meet the requirements for quantity um, in the soil. And in most good soils, that's about 25% of the total soil volume um, if we build our soil correctly. And then the tree begins to pull out water until it it can't pull any more out and begins to wilt. um, And we are calling that the wilt point of the soil. Um, this is the part that's being evapotranspirated out of the tree. The problem is we can't count on that for water quantity because I might get two successive uh, rainy days in a row and I have to, t- I have to treat each of those, of those rain events. So that the, water, that the time that it takes to go from field capacity to will point doesn't figure into the calculation. So I can't use that water. But that water is doing other things. It is being filtered, um, and then the system does empty out. So it has some, some good long-term events, but we can't count it in the short-term uh, uh, requirements of the regulation. We also have to understand about soil interfaces, that if I have a, a soil uh, that is coarse-grained or even fine-grained or heavily compacted with a loosely compacted uh, soil and, or a soil of a different porosity above it, that soil will tend to become completely saturated along the interface line before water will begin to discharge into the lower soil volume. Um, and that's a, actually a good advantage to us, because we want, in, now uh, for years I've tried to say, get rid of the interface if you can, because I want to get that water out of there as fast as I can. On well, a stormwater system, I might want to hold it in there a little bit longer. And it's that interface that's going to give us this extra time that that we need to to hold the water. We also have to uh, fully understand the difference between swamps and bogs. We must have this water pass through, and as it passes through, it brings with it a new supply of oxygen that oxygenates the, 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 water, the, the soil and lets tree roots and the soil biology um, and all those good things that are happening actually happen. So a swamp, this is a, uh, the Atchafalaya swamp in down in Mississippi. Um, even though it looks like those trees are growing in standing water, uh, this, this little green stuff that's growing in the water, when we were out uh, t- getting a lecture actually in our canoes, it was a wonderful day, You could see the water flowing in that swamp with the the way the green material was moving. And that moving water was full of oxygen. And so that water was constantly being replaced with oxygenated water. It was aerobic. And those trees, the tupelos and the the bald cypress, grow in oxygenated water. Now, if I put them in a bog, a, a place where I have trapped water and I use up all of the oxygen... I'm going to kill Tupelos, and I'm going to kill bald cypress. They need oxygen. They've just figured out a way of getting it out of the water. If I've got an anaerobic bog, there's very few plants that actually grow in a, in a bog. Many of them are, are plants that actually can eat insects and get their carbon through other, other mechanisms. So they're a very interesting subset. But there aren't a lot. I don't think there are any trees that actually grow in bogs. Only, uh, tr- uh, but plenty of trees that grow in swamps. So these rain gardens are, need to be like swamps. They cannot be bogs. Now, one of the, the, the things that... And actually, this, this is actually a departure from Up By Roots, because we, we, I hadn't quite matured in my thinking uh, when I finished Up By Roots to get this far. Um, so this is kind of new stuff. And I'm realizing that... We take soil, and we dig it up. And it's unscreened, and it's got a lot of the soil pads. You can see all the soil pads that were originally in that soil still there in the pile. But when we try to make a landscape soil out of it, the industry puts it into this machine here and screens out all the nasty things, the rocks, and the sticks, and and Coke bottles, and other things to make this pile of soil. It goes through screens of about that size, and all the PEDs are destroyed. And we have a soil that's self-compacting, that has a, well, if, that if I put it into these, these flow systems, it's going to have a flow rate of about a quarter of an inch an hour, an eighth of an inch an hour. It's just not going to move water through it. And that's why we say we can't use it. But I have sent samples out of these just by taking those clumps of soil, sending them off to the same lab... And I'll get four and five inches of soil, uh, four to five inches an hour of infiltration in soils um, that are compacted to 80 and 85 percent. So the PED is actually acting as an aggregate in the soil, particularly in heavy clay soils or clay silty loam soils or clay loam soils or sandy clay loam soils. Those PEDs will be very strong and they'll hold together through a lot of handling. As long as I don't screen them and put them in this kind of tumbling rotary machine that's designed to break all these things down. This is going to be a whole different attitude within the soil world, uh, one that's going to take us probably five to ten years to begin to get ingrained. So don't think you're going to be able to just walk out of this room and, and tell the engineers to, oh, you can use a clay loam soil because that's what they're thinking of. And when you say, no, this is what I'm thinking of, Everyone's going to say you're crazy, so just say, "Well, Jim Irvin said so," and they go, "Well, who's he?" So, okay. The next thing you've got to know is the difference between retention and detention. And being slightly dyslexic, I don't know why they picked, why they just couldn't have said, you know, permanent water and and flow through water or something. But the, the, the scientists had to pick these two words that are only different by one letter. Um, but retention is the water goes into the system and doesn't leave the site. It it either percolates into the soil or evapotranspirates out. Where detention is the water moves in and is picked up by a subsurface drain system or an overflow or some way, and then goes off the site or into the storm drain or out to an outfall. We need to know whether we're talking retention or detention, because depending on your local regulations, some local regulations, particularly, for example, in Florida, where they have very intense rain events um, and and they've got to really worry about the Everglades and other issues, they're requiring a lot more retention than, say, in my area, uh, where detention is all I need, um, and I I have a lot more flexibility within uh, the system. So, how much water are we talking about if we're if we're making trees a utility? and this was kind of one of these serendipitous things that happen when I, when um, I, there are religious scientists who talk about science as the language of God, and the 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 math of of, of the universe is actually you know done by somebody and when you get to this kind of of a realization, you can, you know, this is so mathematically perfect. You go, somebody had a hand in this somewhere. If I take the amount of, of soil that sits with to support a single tree, and we've got good data on the soil volumes of trees, that is the same amount of soil that's needed to treat the stormwater that falls in that spot. That maybe our regulations, you know, are they're based on essentially trying to return to a forested ground uh, cover, a forested area. Um, that if I if I can support the canopy of a, of a large tree, I can support all the things that I need uh, for my my stormwater. Now that's for a really big storm, but the regulations are actually uh, less than that, so I've got a little more room. But if I'm uh, say, I want 1,000 cubic feet of soil, which is needed to support a 16 inch um, a caliper uh, tree, which some people think is a big tree. I no longer think that's a big tree. I want to grow a 30 inch caliper tree. I can get um, approximately, uh, what, what is it, uh, the number there? I get, I get about 200 uh, cubic feet of, of water. And 200 cubic feet of water is a very significant number if you're in the stormwater world. Now, how much filtering can we expect out of this? And uh, uh, Bonnie um, uh, was talking about the amount of uptake, but the regulations are actually talking about a percent of, of daily load, trying to pull. The, the the you know to clean the, the water to get it down to certain numbers, um, and the interesting thing happens is for some of these numbers, like the copper and lead and zinc heavy metals, and this number all comes from uh, the Prince George's County uh, work of, of Larry Coffin and other people. Most of it's happening in the upper uh, levels of the soil. That first twelve inches is doing most of the work uh, of the filtering. But when I talk about phosphorus and nitrogen, which are the two big problems in our water areas, Uh, phosphorus and nitrogen are the two big pollutants we've got to get dealing with, there's not a whole lot that happens up in the the top 12 inches. The big heavy lift is down at the lower level. Um, So we've got, there is a big, big advantage to making deeper uh, soil volumes uh, that are draining out the bottom to pick up the, uh, a larger, larger amount of the phosphorus and nitrogen uh, that, that is in the soil. Now, the other two things, the questions, the two questions I always get is, well, there's all this oil coming off of the road, that's going to be killing the trees, and if you're in a northern climate, I've got all this salt that's coming off the, the, the highway, and it's going to, and, and there's, those are going to be killing the trees. Well, the oil, Um, there's pretty good data that that says that the soil biology actually can process this oil. We're not talking about an oil spill. We're talking about the... And and this is actually some uh, gasoline that was leaking out of a a truck that I happened to going directly into the stormwater. You know, we're we're never talking about oil loads like that. We're talking about very small amounts of oil loads over long periods of time. And the soil biology can take and begin to process that, uh, that kind of material, and actually turn it into a usable product for the tree. It's carbon. It's just good old carbon, and that's what the tree needs down there. So it's uh, you know sort of an oil mulch, if you will, which if it comes in slowly enough over a long enough period of time, the, the, the soil biology will turn that into the same kinds of organic chemical carbon that the, that, uh, the tree uh, needs to process Uh, other chemicals within the soil. Now on the salt side, it's a little bit more controversial. The first thing you have to do is to understand the difference between salt in soil water, the salt that we're sprinkling on the ground during the ice event, which is then running into the tree wells, and airborne salt, the salt we put on the road, which is then atomized up by the car um, into the air, uh, and then it gets on the leaves of the tree and kills the, kills the tree or stunts the tree. But well, it turns out the airborne salt is actually much more uh, harmful to the tree than the waterborne salt under certain conditions. Um, and so this is in, uh, uh, outside of Toronto, this is in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you'll notice that the trees, these two trees here, actually those two benches that used to surround trees, the trees are dead. Now, did they die from salt? Um, I don't know, uh, but I'm going to guess that salt probably played a role in that. But there is this strip along the edge which is, um, in which the trees actually didn't die. So the trees in the larger soil volume um, didn't die from the salt, and the trees in the confined soil volumes died. Now, did they, com- did they die from com- uh, the salt or from just being in a confined soil volume? I, I don't know. Um, but um, I'm working a lot in Toronto where they use a lot of salt, Um, And Richard Ubbins is an extremely good urban forester, is making observations. So his observations are that trees in large soil volumes that have reasonable drainage out the bottom are not affected by waterborne salt, where trees in small uh, soil volumes, in extremely uh, poorly draining soils, um, and tight, uh, small soil volumes are impacted by salt. And that would make very good sense because we're talking about a level of dilution here. And we're also talking about most of that, if if I've got free draining material that then is in a very large area to receive the salt. When I get my spring rains, that's diluting the salt, pushing it through. And as long as that salt is pushed through before bud break, there's no impact on the tree. Or very little impact on the tree. Um, And so I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the that if I make my systems big enough, I can get around the salt problems even in places like Toronto um, and Green Bay. Now the big problem is compaction. compaction slows down the infiltration rate it slows down my soil volume it slows down my my filtering capacity. so I have to essentially figure out a way to either break the compaction that's there um, and keep new compaction from getting into the system um, that I'm talking about, designing. So those are the hurdles I have to overcome. Those are the things I'm trying to achieve. Now, we're going to slip on out to Portland. This is Portland, Oregon, which has been doing more uh, work. And these images come from the City of Portland uh, 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 manual um, on their rain garden systems. Um, this was one of the first ones that they did, and they just basically dug, a, uh, dug out the roadbed. Um, this was you know, the curb is back here. This was the parking strip, and they dug it out. And it was actually a fairly steep uh, area, which doesn't show up in this thing. But then they built. They had to build some check dams in there to get the hydrology right. Um, and there's no under drainage. Uh, it was in a compacted roadbed, but it's it works pretty well. Um, It does slow the water down tremendously. It does begin to do the kind of filtering um, that they're they're looking for. Then they brought this idea into uh, downtown. This is a city street. The original curb was here. This was a totally built out environment. And they built these these, uh, uh, cells, uh, which are surrounded by concrete walls. And the, the water comes into the cell, down in here, and, and it's supposed to flow through and come back out, and then go into the next cell and come back out, and all on and on. So it goes in, out, in, out, in, out, like that. That's, that was the design. That isn't what happens. Water comes into the first cell, this first cell fills up, and then no more water goes in there, no water comes out. The water goes down, fills up, fills this one up, no more water goes in there. Essentially, the high, they didn't understand the hydrology of the back pressure, so that the water would only go in, but it wouldn't come out. So they only capture that very first flush of water. They're not getting nearly the volume that they, they, they would like in there. Um, they also, the soil underneath there, and I think I've got, uh, I've got a photograph. Uh, I always carry my soil probe, so when everybody says something, oh, I've got a sandy soil in here, you know, I look. I look And in fact, they did have a sandy loam soil, but they said it was uh, 18 to 24 inches deep, and it turned out to be eight inches deep. And they go, well, maybe we weren't here when the contractor came. But underneath that was a very stiff, silty loam that even though we had been there the day after it had rained, um, this was quite uh, moist. And below was moist but not wet, was not saturated. The water in just 24 hours had already uh, gone to field capacity in the sandier soil above um, and drained into the stiff, uh, uh, silty, loam soil below and dissipated into the soil uh, enough so that the soil was, was not at all saturated. The other big problem with this system, they had these beautiful tree gr- or grates, and I, I, you know I hate grates anyway, but they were totally clogged with leaves, so now nothing was going in. And all of these were collecting down at the in inlet, and that was totally clogged, and the, all the water was just bypassing the whole system and going down to the next inlet. And he said, yeah, we have to, we have to spend a lot of time maintaining this. So we, we need to begin to think about, how, how are we going to solve uh, that particular problem? Now, the one thing that they did, they recognized that the water didn't go in and out. So now they just have a single entrance, and they capture what water they can. Um, you can see that there, if you study that photograph, there's actually a pretty good flow going in the side uh, way and no, water, no more water going in. So only the first pond goes in and then that's a trapped system. We'll get a little bit of filtering on that system, but we, we, need, we need it to be bigger. It's got to be much bigger than what we're talking about. And the depth of this has to be lower. It's the, the soil in here is just too high to really function the way that it, that it needs to function. You also notice here that they are now beginning to incorporate real trees in their system, and they put them up on little pedestals uh, on the side of their, their garden so that they can stay dry during the, the wet period, and then they can grow roots down into uh, this, this wetter system during the wet, during the wet periods. So they pretty much settled on this design. They're building these all over town. The the curb, let's see, this is in the parking lay-by, and it is limited by that box, which is dramatically larger than a Filterra box, but a fraction of the size of what I want to grow a tree as a utility. Uh, but then now they bring the water in down at the end. And then this box is the overflow. So they're forcing the water to go through the whole system and then exiting um, into uh, the, thing, the, the, so it comes in, runs through whatever filtering material is going to run in here, and then out, out the other end. So they've got the, the hydrology better. Now I'm just going to show you some of the lessons learned that they've learned, but the rest of the country hasn't really uh, learned. Um, They found that if they designed these things with a sharp angle on them, a lot of the water didn't keep laminar flow, and it just kept going right across the opening. So they're now starting to build them with radiuses that look more like this. And they found that right there on the apron, they needed quite a steep slope to get that water to actually uh, hydraulically do what what they wanted it to do. They've really got to hit the leaf problem with a big hammer. Uh, this one is twice the size of the original one that they built, and it still clogs with leaves. So this leaf problem is something we're, we're, we're all going to have to wrestle with because if we're going to grow big trees, they're going to produce leaves, and, and we're going to have to deal with either blocking them from going into the system um, or being able to clean them in some way. This water has got sediment in it that's going to have to be dealt with. This is a discharge into... Uh, the sediment basin, and um, they've they've got about two inches of sediment in here because the upstream end of this thing was a a planted area that had a lot of sediment in it. The paving areas don't seem to have that problem, but if you've got a lot of planted area upstream of your rain garden, you're going to probably have a lot of silt in there, and that's that's going to build up, and, and so your system has to be designed for that. They found that generally they could, they're having a big problem getting the pipe overflow rim set high enough. I mean, it's got to be way up there. Get that, because this is going to be the, the rim elevation, so that's, the, that, that's that ponding water that we're trying to collect and filter through the soil. By having the rim down here, it, once it reaches that rim, it just goes into the pipe and it's gone. It doesn't go through the system. So even though they've got a very, very large, a reasonably large volume here for collecting water, it didn't work because the, the, the rim was set too low. They built some really big systems, but then they discovered that they set the engineer set the, the little basin. The engineer designed the basin so it would, would, would always let the water flow through, but uh, this is Tom Lipton who helped with a lot of these. Um, and you know, he says it should be up here somewhere. Uh, in Germany, I found this really wonderful little um, adjustable check dam uh, that uh, Herbert Seidel, uh built with the opening at the bottom, so it's self-cleaning, so that the that only it's a very small opening, and because it has to be small, he has to be able to control that. He can't design it, so he goes out and he designs them all, and then he goes out on a really rainy day and sees how they're functioning. And he sets that opening to be just precisely, it's no calculation, he's just looking at how fast the water's flowing through, and then he bolts it shut. And and, and it works. The hydrology on these things is really, really tight. We have to get the grades uh, correctly on the inflow. This is a a rain garden in in my town, and no water actually ever goes in there, because the grades on the side were not set to get enough water to flow in. In other times, I've seen too much water going in um, and, and overwhelming the system with too much water. So we have to get those things taken care of. So this is uh, the only one of these that I've actually designed and built. They're really tough to, to get right. Uh, we've got an acre of land, uh, all paved, going down into uh, that used to go into an inlet there and out into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, we have a filtering uh, medium. But I wanted a tree there and I wanted the tree in a different location. Um, so how am I going to get this water to water that tree? So what we did was we connected the filter over into the soil volume and the soil volume is designed to support a really large tree. And then out of the, 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 these channels comes these filter cloth wings that go up into the soil and wick water up into four feet up in the air. This was a a technique that was pioneered by Bob Skier in in Milwaukee on some of his planters. Um, And we're getting really nice growth on on this this tree. Uh, With no irrigation, there's very little maintenance here. I go down and clean the trash out. Trash is always a problem uh, once a year. Now how do I take this system, put it into a a very urban area um, where I don't have a lot of room, and avoid... Uh, that um, when I begin to take these rain gardens and plug them into uh, a highly urbanized area, this is in Chicago, um, the Chicago Green Infrastructure Study. I'm taking up about a quarter of the right of way for my rain garden and to support that tree, uh, and I believe I need that much space. But you know, can I get that much right of way in an intense urban area in Portland? You know, they barely got big enough pieces there. Um, so, and and what my, my thought is that we need to build essentially compaction-resistant landscapes so that I can have the soil, a very high-efficient soil, functioning somehow and not being compacted by, by, the, by the cars above it, so that somehow this is all functioning um, under the pavement. So that I'm having something that's happening under the pavement that's beginning to replicate all of those functions that I showed you that the the mature natural tree would be replicating um, and doing that with some kind of suspended paving system, uh, suspended soil uh, where the the paving is suspended over the the soil. um, And this is where we get into uh, an application for this silver cell system um, that I developed um, or helped develop a number of years ago. So we're looking at a, a parking lot application where we could begin to have really large trees that can shade the parking lot, um, a, a system that can handle the st- storm water, And if if I have a, a one and a half inch rainfall event on this parking lot, how much, how much do I need? It turns out that I need about if I my trees are spaced about 35 feet on center, um, or one uh, tree for every uh, three or four parking spaces, um, I need about 1,000 cubic feet of soil. It keeps coming back to that number, which I still think should be bigger, but that's sort of a threshold number uh, that I need to achieve. But I need to figure out how to make sure now I really get water reliably into that system. And to do that, I can use pervious pavers, uh, some other ideas of some trenches, little slots that may or may not work, uh, all kinds of trench drain systems and curb inlets. And there are ways of of getting um, these systems uh, to function. Maybe I I have a leaf collection area somewhere that can be quite small, um, and then going into um, uh, the other system, which might be under uh, the pavement. Um, So here I've got a a slotted channel drain that then goes into a a prefabricated inlet that can be cleaned out with leaves, um, and then the water going into um, the airspace under the silva cell and allowing water to flow across the whole mass of of the cell system, um, even rising up into the the gravel subbase above um, as extra storage area. This is a system we're doing um, on Bloor Street in Toronto uh, with our drain down the middle of the sidewalk. And I think it. here's our, our, our prefabricated drain inlet that can be cleaned out. And then here are the pipes that are going in underneath uh, the system so that this whole area, the entire area, is the stormwater management system and also the system for for the tree. Now, I think that this architect, as much as I tried to tell him this wouldn't work, I mean, this is just, oh, Jim, no, Jim, we 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 can't make that channel any bigger. That's the channel that's collecting all that water. I guarantee you, it's not going to work. But it it looks nice, and that was the goal. You know, design goal, design trumps science. Um, another project in Toronto where we're using big, big strips of pervious pavers to collect the water and bring it down into um, a pipe system which runs through the cells, uh, creating a... We're picking up all the storm water across the entire roadbed, um, and we even get some roof water uh, to go in there if we need to. Uh, we've got more capacity here than we need for that entire road section and a double row of trees that's going to cool the city um, and collect water. Uh, So here is one, Uh, this is also in Toronto, where we have a catch basin up here, here's the catch basin, and that's picking up the water, loaded with salts, loaded with oil, it's gonna go down into this pipe, and then this six inch pipe that flows through the cells, and then that white pipe is going to have soil on, all around it. So it's, it's got a filter cloth in it, but here I'm not using this as a drain pipe. The filter cloth is, is simply keeping the soil from backwashing into the, 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 the exfiltration pipe. And so maybe the, the filter cloth sock here makes sense. I don't use filter cloths on, when I'm picking it up at the, the lower end. There is a drain line underneath that's picking up the excess water uh, from this system. And here the system, actually we're parking on top of it, so we didn't have enough room over here. So here's, here's our biofiltration system. Here's the curb uh, going in here. So the sidewalk is over there, and cars are going to park um, in that little space right in there. So there's. We haven't gotten the trees in, in this one. Um, we were supposed to have data on this this summer, but the city went on strike in June, and the, the whole system came to a... The whole, the whole process just came to a stop. That's good old Canadian unions, uh, you know, they shut down the city when they want to, and maybe God bless them. But to design these things, it takes a lot of um, engineering. This is not something you can do at home. Uh, Somebody's really got to think about the the elevations, both horizontally, uh, parallel to the curb, across the curb. Um, how all these things work. They're they're fairly tricky pieces of engineering, but in the end, we're going to get trees and stormwater. Now, the interesting thing on the economics of this is that that, that these cost a lot of money. Um, When I say, I need this for the tree, they laugh at you. When you say, I need this much work for the stormwater, guess what happens? It's the cheapest thing you can do. Except for cisterns, which only provide quantity and no uh, no quality, this is the cheapest way of handling stormwater. Much cheaper than some of these other bigger engineered systems. Suddenly you got the engineer's attention. You're saving in money and you're growing great trees. You get the tree for free. Tree doesn't cost anything. All this, this money is being spent for stormwater. So we've been talking about this. This is a Los Angeles example where, uh, which we were agreeing with George Gonzalez's uh, proposal, if we just put in, uh, let's see, this is a 400 cubic foot system, um, and we can get 100 cubic feet of rain, and he goes, yeah, I, that's what I can afford, but I need more water, I've got to put more water in here. So here's a system that picks up, he needs to go from the center line of the street to the property line, um, and he needs that much in order to meet his regulations. But he can meet it, right there on the street in a retrofit um, in the middle of Los Angeles. Uh, this is a project in Marquette Street, in Minneapolis. Uh, this is actually just a, a stormwater system. It doesn't have any trees in it at all. Um, it, the parts of it do, will get trees, but not in this section. Uh, but it was so efficient, they just built it as the, the, the primary uh, stormwater system. Um, two layers. Uh, you can see the, white, the, the pipe in here is the exfiltration pipe going in. Looks very much like that previous system I showed you. Um, but, and, and here's the, the paving on top. There are some trees that are going to grow in on the side of that, um, but, it's, but it's not a, a traditional streetscape. Um, and the, and these are, we're finding these that even, um, this is a, a suburban strip uh, landscape. I mean, that's not a high-dollar landscape. Uh, probably looks like a lot of um, main streets and a, and a lot of small towns. Um, and here, to pick up the, the water, this is in Aurora, Washington. Uh, we're picking up the curb water um, and the, the sidewalk water into a traditional rain garden on this side that picks up the water... Cleans out the leaves and and the basic debris, and then that water is filtering down into increasing the soil volume, so they can meet the regulations under the sidewalk, so they can get the sort of a hybrid system uh, to give them um, what they need. Um, and this is uh, that first example I showed you in Falls Creek, um, Vancouver, uh, where. They built half the system and planted the trees. They're still building the building on the other side. They're going to build the second half after they finish uh, the building. So it's a modular system, very, very flexible. So to meet both these quantity and quality design goals, particularly in urban areas, you're going to need all of these things. Not one of them is going to work for all applications. You're gonna need ponds and cisterns because you need more volume than you can usually uh, get. Uh, green roofs, while they're horribly expensive, is the big area that, I mean, it's, it's the area where you've got a lot of surface area to treat. In a new building, you know, green roof or pervious pavers might work. Uh, and then some kind of hybrids of biofiltration, uh, rain gardens um, with trees, Uh, uh, essentially doing its share of the right-of-way. With all those together, we can return the the urban environment back to a natural forest. We can give it the same, uh, you know, forget that little wimpy 1.5-inch rainstorm, which is the regulation. I want to go to 100%. I think the law eventually is going to get there. Uh, Maybe it's going to get to 50% of 100%. Uh, right now, it's at about 20% of 100%. It's going to go higher. Um, we're going to need more and more tools. We're going to start building these things and figure out where where the problems are, um, how we can make them better. Uh, we're 10 years from uh, a good solution, um, but I, I know I'm going to depend on you all to begin pushing for exploring some of these ideas uh, throughout your work, because uh, you're, you're the people who really understand the integration of plants and trees to make all this work.
1: This concludes Jim Urban's talk on incorporating trees into urban rainwater management systems. If you want more information from Jim, you can purchase his new book, Up by Roots, from the ISA online bookstore. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture.